the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. There's a lot to talk about, so we'll hit the ground running. But you should also know that we're going to hear from Tim McGrath, author of James Monroe, A Life. Of course, he was a president. We'll uh, hear from him in uh, the second hour of today's program. And we'll also hear the thoughts of an Afghan uh, pastor who now has a satellite ministry beaming into Afghanistan, one of the few resources that are currently uh, ministering to those in the country and encouraging believers and bringing others to faith in Christ. We'll talk about that later in the program as well. Well, the war in Afghanistan has officially ended. The withdrawal is complete. But the heartache continues. The Pentagon announced today that all U.S. troops have departed Afghanistan. The removal of U.S. troops met the August 31st deadline. In fact, it uh, was early uh, that the president, the administration, agreed to with the Taliban, officially drawing the country's longest ever conflict to an end. But the fate of those left behind remains a mystery, with White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki confirming earlier today that a small number of Americans who want to leave remain in the country. She couldn't give an estimate on exactly how many Americans remained in the country, though the senior State Department official put that number at below 250. Uh, There's a lot of heartbreak associated with the departure, CENTCOM Commander General Kenneth McKenzie said in the closing of the evacuation operations, he acknowledged we did not get everyone out that we wanted to get out. Now, that is uh, that breaks the president's promise to stay in Afghanistan until every American is evacuated. He had promised in an interview that if there are American citizens left, we're going to stay to get them out. That changed today. In fact, the flights, the final flights out of Afghanistan today did not contain any U.S. Civilians. Well, the president appears to have broken his promise to stay there until every American is evacuated. Marine Corps General Kenneth McKenzie Jr. announced uh, this evening, uh, Eastern Time, that the last of the U.S. troops uh, stationed at Kabul in the airport had left, completing the military's drawdown in the country, even though hundreds of Americans likely remain. The commander of the U.S. Central Command said that some American citizens who wanted to leave remain in the country. We did not get everybody out that wanted to get out, he said. President Joe Biden told ABC News George Stephanopoulos during an interview that was on the 18th that the U.S. military objective there was to get everyone out, including Americans and Afghan allies and their families. That's what we're doing now, he said. That's the path we're on. And I think we'll get there. If uh, there's American citizens left, we're going to stay to get them out, end quote. Well, a senior State Department official said that there is still a small number of Americans who are in Afghanistan, no reference to Afghans who are entitled to leave. That official put the number, uh, again, at below 250, adding that some additional Americans had departed Afghanistan in recent hours. The official added that the State Department is also committed to evacuating those who worked with us, referring to Afghan partners. That didn't happen. Well, the announced um, uh, end of the withdrawal comes less than a day before the official deadline agreed to. The Taliban has said that they will allow normal travel after the U.S. withdrawal is completed on Tuesday and they assume control of the airport. Now, whether or not that will, in fact, be the case remains to be seen. And there was discussion earlier in the day that the United States will continue its efforts to negotiate with the Taliban, uh, diplomatically seek ways to uh, get Americans and others entitled to leave, at least from our perspective, out of the country. Now, because we have no presence on the ground in Afghanistan, that may be, may be something of a challenge, but we'll certainly continue to follow the story. Aside from the botched effort to uh, withdraw troops from Afghanistan, this was the largest withdrawal of U.S. Uh, personnel in our nation's history. In other news, the president traveled to Dover Air Force Base on Sunday for the dignified transfer of remains of the 13 U.S. service members 
killed in an attack on the Harmid um, Karzai International Airport in Kabul. The remains of the service members were flown to the U.S. from Germany on Sunday morning with a number of family members present for the transfer. The president and first lady met with family members just prior to the transfer. Well, the arrival of fallen servicemen in the U.S. is referred to as a dignified transfer instead of a ceremony so that family members don't feel obligated to attend. It may not be possible for them, although they may do so if they wish. The Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, Mark Milley, were also present. The 13 service members that we lost were heroes who made the ultimate sacrifice in service of our highest American ideals. And while saving the lives of others, the president said in a statement on Saturday, he was also seen looking at his watch during the ceremony or rather the transfer of remains. The service members were killed along with uh, close to 200 Afghans in an attack on Thursday by ISIS um, Khorasan, the terror group's Central Asian affiliate, a suicide bomber affiliated with the group, detonated an improvised explosive device outside the airport's Abbey Gate, killing and maiming the Afghans awaiting entry into the airfield and the Marines admitting them who were preparing to frisk the bomber. The attack uh, marked the deadliest single day for American troops in the war in Afghanistan since 2011. Well, the 13 warriors taken from us in Afghanistan last Thursday in that murderous attack that uh, that we knew was coming, our Marine Corps Lance Corporal David Espinoza. He was 20. He was from Rio Bravo, Texas. Um, Congressman here, uh, Henry uh, Keller said, is certainly uh, one of these examples of what we have here at the border. A young man who went across the world trying to get Americans and American allies of the United States to safety. Also, Marine Corps Sergeant Nicole G. She was 23 of Roseville, California. She was featured in a viral um, image that speaks to uh, speaks a thousand words about whom a dear friend wrote. I find peace knowing that she left this world doing what she loved. She was a Marine's Marine. She cared about people. She loved fiercely. She was a light in this dark world. Marine Corps Staff Sergeant Darren Taylor Hoover, 31 of Utah, the oldest of the fallen, who, in his dad's words, did what he loved doing, serving the United States. Army Staff Sergeant Ryan Naus, 23 of Coryton, Tennessee, who, when he was in second grade, drew himself in uniform and wrote in his yearbook, I want to be a Marine. Marine Corps Corporal Hunter Lopez, 22, of Indio, California, whose mother is a deputy sheriff and whose father is a sheriff's captain and who had plans to join them as a sheriff's deputy after his deployment. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Riley McCollum, 20, of Jackson, Wyoming, who got married earlier this year on Valentine's Day, who signed up the day he turned 18, said his sister Royce, and who was cast iron tough, said his longtime wrestling coach. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Dylan Morello, 20, of Ranchero, uh, California, whose two great-grandfathers um, fought in the Korean War and who wanted to serve his country, said his grandmother. It's all um, he talked about in high school. Marine Corps Lance uh, Corporal Kareem Nikau, 20, of Norco, California, who was an incredible individual with a great heart, said a close family friend, and whose death leaves his family devastated and calling on their faith to help them persevere. Marine Corps Corporal Dagan William Tyler Page, 23, of of Omaha, Nebraska, who was a Boy Scout, an animal lover, and a Chicago Blackhawks fan, and who his family says will always be remembered for his tough outer shell and giant heart. Marine Corps Sergeant Joanna Rosario, 25, of Lawrence, Massachusetts, whose friend said fellow Marines described as a beautiful person inside and out and a great uh, mentor to her junior Marines. Marine Corps Corporal Humberto Sanchez, 22, of Logansport, Indiana, who a lifetime friend says was a light that was on 24-7 and was constantly joking, constantly laughing, constantly trying to make people smile. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Jared Schmitz, uh, 20, of Wentzville, Missouri, who, according to his father, was on his first deployment and had always wanted to serve his country. His life meant so much more, he said. I'm so incredibly devastated that I won't be able to see the man that he was very quickly growing into becoming. A Navy hospital corpsman, Max Soviak, 22, of Berlin Heights, Ohio, who, as a corpsman, was a medic for combat Marines, who was an accomplished wrestler, wrestler rather, and football player, who was a beautiful intel- intellect, annoyingly charming, 
as a baby brother and whose parents, perhaps in the spirit of a corpsman, were selfless enough to offer condolences to the families that also lost a loved one and a speedy recovery to those who were injured. Let's mourn those fine young Americans gone. Then let's collect ourselves. Then let's think about think about them fondly and thank God they lived. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I ventured out into the hallway with my mask on and I almost started this segment with it still still on. So make sure you look up James and make sure I don't have the mask on when we start our segments. Uh, hey, we're glad to have you with us. So later in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Tim McGrath, author of James Monroe, A Life, A Life. Uh, the book is published by Random House. It's just an interesting uh, recollection of a former president. Well, the U.S. on Monday intercepted as many as five rockets launched at the airport in Kabul, where evacuation efforts were ongoing. They have now ended. The White House said National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Chief of Staff Ron Klain briefed the president on the attempted attack on the airport in Afghanistan's capital. Another official told Reuters that uh, there were uh, no initial reports uh, detailing any U.S. casualties. And thus far, that has remained the case. The rocket attack comes one day after a U.S. drone struck an explosive-filled vehicle vehicle en route to Kabul's airport and four days after the ISIS suicide bomber killed 13 American troops and some 200 Afghan nationals wounding 15 U.S. troops as well. The attack on the airport also happened one day before the American military was scheduled to fully withdraw from Afghanistan after nearly 20 years of war following the 9-11 terrorist attacks that anniversary of course approaching on Saturday, the U.S. had warned Saturday of a specific credible threat near the airport, urging Americans remaining to evacuate the premises as soon as possible. The president also said that day that another attack in the Afghan capital was highly likely. Well, the Pentagon on Saturday confirmed that two high profile Islamic State leaders in Afghanistan were killed in a retaliatory drone strike carried out by the U.S. military less than 48 hours after a suicide bombing by the group at the Kabul airport. Major General Hank Taylor, who's the deputy director of the Joint Staff for Regional Operations, confirmed during a briefing on Saturday that the two targets were killed and one was wounded. Pentagon's press secretary, John Kirby, said on Saturday that all of the targets, who were ISIS-K planners and facilitators, were hit in a single strike in the province of Afghanistan, Nang Ahar. The airstrike came one day after the president threatened the perpetrators of the deadly uh, airport attack, saying, we will hunt you down and make you pay. And whether or not that uh, constitutes hunting the individuals responsible down and making them pay remains to be seen. We learned today that the Taliban apparently had offered Kabul to the United States, and that was actually confirmed by the president's chief of staff and comments he made earlier today. But the Americans said No. Now, this is puzzling to me. Maybe you can figure it out. Taliban fighters took the Afghan capital city of Kabul faster than anyone anticipated earlier this month, including the Taliban. But according to a Washington Post report, the U.S. had an opportunity to hold the city only to willingly turn it over. And when Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country, the city started to collapse. Gangs were reported to to be taking over. This led to U.S. military leaders meeting and reaching an agreement with the Taliban. This is according to a U.S. official speaking to The Washington Post. We have two options to deal with it. Taliban political leader Abdul Ghani Baradar uh, reportedly said, according to the official, you, the United States military, take responsibility for securing Kabul or you have to allow us to do it. Well, faced with the decision of whether to accept control over Kabul or allow the Taliban to do so, the U.S. opted for the latter, giving the president's uh, insistence on withdrawing from Afghanistan uh, by the um, withdrawal date of August the 31st, which ended up being the 30th. As part of the agreement, the U.S. assumed control of Kabul's airport until the end of the month to facilitate its exit, while the Taliban ruled the city. According to the Post's report, the Taliban had no intention of taking control of Kabul that day. Prior to Ghani's departure, the U.S. had not anticipated it either, as several top officials had reportedly been on vacation. The chaos that ensued when Ghani left, however, required someone to step in. The U.S. decided that it should be the Taliban. I'm speechless. Well, almost. Uh, Taliban commander Mohammed Nasser Haqqani uh, was surprised by the outcome after he and his men reached the city. They awaited instructions later that day. He didn't see a single soldier or police, he said, according to The Washington Post. 
We couldn't control our emotions. We were so happy. Most of our fighters were crying, he said. We never thought we would take Kabul so quickly. Under Taliban rule, terrorists were able to hit U.S. forces as a suicide bomb went off near the airport and again killing 13 American service members. After that happened, the president warned that another attack was highly likely in the coming days. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, Congress, someone will get to the bottom of that arrangement. Meanwhile, Newt Gingrich points out that uh, the Afghan surrender um, is going to have some meaning on September 11th as that anniversary draws near. He writes that Joe Biden probably thought this September 11th, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 attacks, would be a great moment for his presidency. All American troops would be out of Afghanistan. Our country's longest war would be over and he'd be the guy who had the uh, courage to end it. Instead, we may well have hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans hiding across Afghanistan, terrified of the Taliban's barbarism. Remember, the media only reports on Kabul, the Afghan capital, but there are Americans all over the country. And Afghanistan is a big place full of mountain areas where people are isolated and tough to reach. In short, September 11th this year is going to be more painful than normal. It's one thing to remember. It's something else entirely to witness the place where the attacks were planned, returned to its pre-9-11 state with the Taliban in charge and al-Qaeda set to enjoy a countrywide haven. The bottom line is this. Biden made a decision to surrender to the Taliban regardless of the consequences. And now he seems angrily determined to ride it out as a tribe longing for the seventh century dictates um, a terms to the most powerful nation on earth. Again, stunning. The terrorists saw this coming in a letter dated May 2010. Osama bin Laden warned al-Qaeda not to target then-Vice President Joe Biden, hoping he would one day become president. Bin Laden wrote, and I'm quoting, Biden is totally unprepared for that post, which will lead the U.S. into crisis, end quote. Well, the late al-Qaeda leader knew an eventual President Biden would embody a victory for jihad as the ongoing debacle in Afghanistan makes uh, quite clear he was right. Of course, Biden is blaming President Donald Trump for creating the framework of a deal with the Taliban to allow the U.S. troops to leave the country. But the Trump administration's plan was ultimately uh, conditional based on the Taliban meeting various American conditions. And when the Taliban didn't meet those conditions, the U.S. would take military action. Well, President Biden, on the other hand, announced a specific deadline to withdraw and simply proceeded to leave in one fell swoop. The Taliban took Kabul in days. What's most striking is just how botched the administration's policy really was or is. Think about it. There are more troops in Afghanistan now than before the withdrawal and more Americans are being killed now than before the withdrawal. That's simply indefensible. We're being uh, reporters uh, are being told over and over again. Now is not the time to talk about the details and how it was handled. I hope that time comes quickly now that the uh, war in Afghanistan is officially ended with the withdrawal complete to at least the president's satisfaction. In other news, uh, Louisiana's governor's uh, office uh, says we're going to have many more confirmed fatalities following Hurricane Ida. Given the level of destruction wrought by the hurricane, Louisiana is going to have many more confirmed fatalities. That's Christina Stevens, a spokesperson for Governor John Bell Edwards on Monday. The governor's office explained damage to the power grid appeared catastrophic. Officials warned it could take weeks for power to be fully restored. For the most part, all of our levees performed extremely well, and that is an answer to prayer, especially the the federal levees. But at the end of the day, the storm surge, the rain, the wind all had devastating impacts, the governor explained. We have tremendous damage to homes and to businesses. More than 2,200 evacuees were staying in 41 shelters as of Monday morning, a number expected to rise as people were rescued or escaped flooded homes. Stevens said Louisiana will work to move residents to hotels as soon as possible so that they can keep their distance from one another. That is a COVID nightmare, she said. We do anticipate that we could see some COVID spikes related to this. Meanwhile, in a news conference uh, this afternoon, New Orleans Mayor Latoya Cantrell told reporters that the city's communications have been compromised. But one thing we do still have, we recognize that we have the ability to send text messages. AT&T and Energy are doing everything they can. Cantrell said that her office had been in direct contact with the organizations and notes that they have boots on the ground. In addition, the mayor said that it did not appear that the city needs uh, post-disaster evacuation at this time. So that is good news. And, of course, there was great concern about uh, what was going to happen in uh, New Orleans. 
Uh, finally, President Biden called a black advisor boy during a federal emergency management administration briefing on Monday. But very little will be made of it because he's a Democrat and, well, he gets a pass. The president used the term while introducing his senior advisor, his senior advisor, Cedric Richman, a, a former Louisiana congressman. I'm here with my senior advisor and boy who knows Louisiana very, very well in New Orleans, Cedric Richmond, Biden said at a press briefing with FEMA after Hurricane Ida rocked Louisiana. Boy is considered to be a racially derogatory term toward black men who were routinely referred to as boys in those days. The president was criticized for his use of the term during his 2020 presidential campaign when he recalled how segregationist Democrat Senator James Eastland called him son, but never boy. So he apparently understands the difference. The White House didn't um, return requests for comment after the president's use once again of the phrase, the word. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear a conversation with Tim McGrath, James Monroe, a life. Happens to be a president, but a life nonetheless. Well, nearly 500 kids in Oregon between the ages of zero and five uh, tested positive for COVID during the week of August the 15th, according to the Oregon Health Authority. The exact number, 499. Well, that seems like an astonishingly high number to some in the healthcare field. It's apparently not. It doesn't surprise me. That's a quote from Dr. Ben Hoffman. He's a professor of pediatrics at OHSU Dornbecker Children's Hospital. And I think it doesn't surprise me because we're seeing a lot more kids who have been back in uh, daycare or in childcare. And with the rise, the increase that we're seeing across the board, I'm not surprised, end quote. Well, Dr. Hoffman said, despite the large number of kids testing positive, few little ones or even older kids end up in the hospital. I'm also not surprised that those kids are not getting super sick, which is reassuring. And I'm really glad that uh, they're not getting that sick. Well, as of Friday evening, Legacy Health reported four kids who tested positive for COVID in their hospitals, one in its pediatric intensive care unit. Oregon Health and Sciences University reported one child under the age of 12 who is COVID positive and three or who are between the ages of 12 and 19. Well, on the other end of the uh, continuum, there are those who are older who lost their battle with COVID. I attended a memorial service over the weekend for Pastor Stephen Kenneth Stanley. I suppose a better way to describe him would be, let's see, Pastor Professor Dr. Stephen Kenneth Stanley. He was the pastor of Shoals um, Community Church in Shoals. He was the only son of Jimmy and uh, Kenneth Stanley and Mary Elaine Stanley Wedgbury. He lost his battle with covid a couple of weeks ago, and what a loss to the body of Christ. And I just, you know, I thought about this brilliant uh, scholar, this man who loved people, who served his congregation well, who uh, ministered in his community is gone. And yet I'm, I'm reminded that God's timing is perfect, that our days are, for each one of us, is numbered. And we shouldn't be surprised when God calls us home at times when from our vantage point here on Terra Firma may seem like it's untimely. God knows what he's doing. And while this is a tremendous loss to that uh, community, to that church, to the body of Christ in general. God knows precisely what he is doing when he allows that kind of loss. If you think about it, pray for the congregation at Shoals Community Church, a great uh, group of, uh, of people, followers of Jesus. Just one example. I'm sure you could probably share others. Um, but this is a, a, a thing that's taking the lives of some of our friends and family. Well, the question that's being asked is, why now? Oregon has broken a record for the entire pandemic. This month has been breaking back-to-back records for daily cases of COVID-19. Some of the reasons why this is uh, happening now, uh, offered by um, uh, OregonWatchdog.com. You can check it out there. They uh, point out, number one, Oregon has... um, was lightly touched in the pandemic by state by state comparison. Oregon remained in the top 10, sometimes top five states for fewest COVID cases and fewest deaths during the first 14 months of the pandemic. When the Delta variant emerged, Oregon had a greater case free population for it to infect. Number two, Delta variant is more contagious. The variant is twice as contagious, and I've heard in some cases more than that, to other strains by some measurements. Number three, Delta variant is better at avoiding our defenses. Washington Post explains Delta appears better at evading the immunity gained from either immunization or the previous coronavirus infection. It also appears less responsive to some of the antibody therapies used 
to treat COVID. Number four, Oregon's heavy-handed marathon approach came at a cost. Oregon was among the first to close and reopen both in the spring of 2020, the fall of 2020, and early 2021. Our restrictions were more restrictive than 40 other states. Our schools were also among the first to close and among the last to reopen. By the time Oregon finally reopened in July of 2021, we were among the final three states to do so. We reopened from a marathon-long shutdown, just as the more contagious variant was spreading. For other states who did less lockdowns, they had greater case rates but managed through it. So when Delta arrived, their population had greater population rate immunity than Oregon. Oregon's heavy-handed restrictions came at an incredible cost, with uh, which makes it harder for the governor to repeat it, to handle it uh, in time of greater need. And five, a virus naturally goes in cycles regardless of what humans do. This is the most difficult factor to explain, but bears great importance to understanding where we are. In times past, when populations practice no preventative measures against viruses, the viruses often would follow and ebb and flow pattern. This may explain why sometimes the virus spikes in lockdown states and nations and curiously falls in lockdown states and nations for no apparent reason. We may not know how much influence we have over the pandemic until well after time passes. The chart um, that they offered in this article, which you can find, as I mentioned, at watchdog.com, of uh, the world infection shows a commonly shared pattern that happens despite different continents, regions, and different lockdown strategies. And finally, number six, COVID may be around for generations. Some viruses, like the common cold and flu, stay around despite our Herculean efforts to eradicate it. They offered these six explanations to provide better context to an extremely complicated crisis. It also reminds us that some things are beyond our control and that there is a limit to what government can do. I think I'll repeat that. Someone might be listening. There is a limit to what government can do. Something to uh, to think about. Well, community members gathered in Legrand for medical freedom. They held a rally. Just say no. That was the echoed uh, phrase throughout downtown Legrand. As a former Speaker of the Oregon House of Representatives, Mark Simmons, led chants to a crowd of over 200 gathered in front of the city hall there on Saturday. The demonstration was organized by several groups in Union County to rally for members of the community against COVID-19 vaccination requirements. The outcry came in the wake of the governor's vaccine mandates for state employees, school staff and health care workers, many of whom, uh, for a variety of reasons, just say no. Well, the Oregon Employment Department says that there's one question they're fielding a lot right now. What happens when an employee refuses to comply with their employer's COVID-19 vaccine requirements? Would they be eligible for unemployment benefits? Well, the acting director of the department says they're required to, uh, by federal law, to look at each situation individually. So there isn't a one size fits all approach. So there isn't a yes or no answer, apparently. But for people who do not qualify for key exceptions, those benefits could be off the table. The uh, Oregon uh, Department says that uh, when it comes to benefits and the COVID-19 vaccine, they'll review each and every case. One of the key things that we look at is whether the issue involves a reasonable expectation on the part of the employer. That's a quote from the acting director, David uh, Gertensfeld, uh, during a press briefing earlier this week. He went on to say, and I want to be clear, this isn't the employment department making a value judgment as to whether it's good or bad policy. We give employ- employers rather quite a bit of leeway to run their business the way they want. He went on to say, when looking at benefit eligibility, they're considering if the standard set by an employer was a reasonable one. In broad strokes, requiring someone to be vaccinated during the midst of a worldwide pandemic is a reasonable policy. So that gives you a glimpse into how they're likely to rule in cases that come before them in the days ahead. So if somebody doesn't follow that policy and they don't have a good reason, and what constitutes a good reason in the employment department, it very well could result in them not being eligible for benefits, end quote. Well, there are a few key exceptions. Those include someone having a medical disability, which means they should not get the vaccine or a sincerely held religious belief. In Oregon, nearly all K through 12 school employees and healthcare workers must be fully vaccinated against the virus by the 18th of October. Employers that do not comply could face fines. So keep that in mind. On the other side, Oregon state economists released the September economic and revenue forecast this week. These forecasts are issued every three months and they're used by the legislature. 
and the governor's office to make budget and spending decisions, as well as to calculate any expected tax rebate, a.k.a. The kicker. Yeah, it's still alive and well in Oregon. Well, the September forecast is now projecting that Oregonians can expect to receive individual kickers totaling $1.9 billion next year. Well, the uh, kicker is one of the only tools available that's left in Oregon to restrain the growth and cost of government. Well, for those with annual incomes between twenty nine to fifty two K, the kicker will be about four hundred and forty dollars. And for those making between fifty two and ninety five thousand. The kicker uh, will be uh, around $790. You can go to uh, the OregonCatalyst.com website and actually calculate the kicker refund that you will receive under Oregon law. Again, OregonCatalyst.com. And while you're there, check it out. They've got good information for um, for Oregonians. Uh, even with the kicker, by the way, state economists are now saying that we're going to have over $5 billion in ending balances and reserves. That means after government has paid all its budget bills and paid the kicker, it's still going to have over $5 billion left over. Now, this is our money in that it's taxpayer money. It is money that we all have paid in taxes, and it clearly shows that our taxes, well, they're too high. The kicker is not enough. It's uh, clearly time to lower taxes and let Oregonians keep more of their own hard-earned money instead of letting legislators in Salem spend our money on projects or just sit on it with gargantuan reserves. How likely is that to happen? I'm not holding my breath. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear a classic interview with Tim McGrath, author of James Monroe, A Life. We're also going to share some thoughts from a pastor from Afghanistan that has a satellite ministry uh, looking toward Afghanistan in the days ahead, uh, comparing what's happening there now to what happened in Iran and the growth of the church in that country since the uh, the revolution. So that's coming up in the final segment of today's program. Well, as mentioned earlier, Hurricane Ida knocked out power to the entire city of New Orleans. Uh, Hurricane Ida knocked the the power for the entire area hours after blasting ashore. One of the most powerful storms to ever hit the U.S., New Orleans government uh, officials say. Well, President Biden on Sunday declared that a major disaster exists there and ordered federal aid to supplement the state, tribal and local recovery efforts in the area impacted by Hurricane Ida. The National Weather Service said Ida, which came ashore as a powerful Category 4 hurricane, had weakened to a Category 1 storm with top sustained winds of up to 75 five miles an hour as its eye moved west of the city. In other developments, there was a temporary 911 outage as New Orleans uh, hurricane uh, hit and Cajun Navy relief president says the hurricane's impact on Louisiana is unprecedented, which is saying something given what we've seen in past years. Ida brings also a nightmare scenario for gas prices. Well, the U.S. Coast Guard was ready to move in for rescue operations the moment the storm tamped down. And the Kabul airport was uh, targeted in a rocket attack, but foiled by U.S. missile defense system. Uh, the official said there was no reported casualties. The U.S. Central Command didn't immediately respond to after-hours uh, questions. But um, uh, Jen Psaki, White House press secretary, said top aides have briefed the president on the development. She said in a statement that in light of the attack, the president has reconfirmed his order that commanders redouble their efforts to prioritize doing whatever is necessary to protect our forces on the ground. And that was translated earlier today with complete withdrawal of all military forces on the ground and every effort to remove Americans and Afghans who earned the right to come to the United States. Marines posted photos of the dignified transfer of fallen service members killed in Kabul. Ambassador Nikki Haley says that U.S. allies are having conversations without us over Biden's beyond disgusting withdrawal. And that's in quotes. Stranded in Kabul, Americans, special immigration visa applicants and legal permanent residents are being stopped at Taliban checkpoints. They don't know what's happening now. There is no U.S. presence on the ground. Meanwhile, Hollywood is mobilizing to protect Gavin Newsom with a recall effort. Major Hollywood figures have teamed up to bankroll the effort to prevent the recall aimed at 
uh, to ouster California Governor Gavin Newsom next month. Executive directors, uh, I should say executives, directors, producers and actors have opened their pocketbooks to protect Newsom, who faces a recall on September 14th. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings has contributed a whopping three million dollars to the political action committee defending the governor, according to California, California Secretary of State's uh, office. The Entertainment Software Association contributed 50,000, while Paramount Pictures 40,000 and Motion Picture Association 10,000 on that effort. The singer-songwriter John Roger Stevens, known as John Legend, urged Californians to vote against the recall. We'll see what happens and if voters are listening. And other developments, California gubernatorial candidate Larry Elder is confident that Newsom will lose in the recall, saying he'll be out of here. California reporters are criticizing the governor for dodging them in favor of national media. And Wisconsin lost track of more than 82,000 mail-in ballots cast in the state in the November 2020 elections, more than four times the margin of difference separating the two presidential candidates in the state, according to a report by Public Interest Legal Foundation, a nonprofit. The Legal Foundation, an election integrity watchdog group, released a research brief on Friday looking at one of the most closely contested states in the 2020 presidential election. However, the Wisconsin Elections Commission disputes those findings, as the commission spokesman said the report mischaracterizes election systems and cherry-picks data, adding it is unreliable and, frankly, it's sloppy work. Of course, they would say that. Well, the Fed faces a new challenge spelling out employment goals. The stock market turns cautious as defensive share uh, surge. Virginia residents plead guilty in an unemployment fraud case. And Twitter permanently suspends Alex Berenson over his coronavirus tweets. They didn't measure up to what's now accepted speech in a free speech nation. Well, the Washington Post reports the U.S. Uh, had the option to control Kabul, but chose rather to let go. And a report claims the U.S. drone strike on ISIS also killed a family with children, obviously inadvertent, not deliberately, possibly as many as six children. Well, U.S. Central Command said near the close of a statement last night, it is unclear what may have happened and we are investigating further. That investigation cannot continue if there are no U.S. Uh, military personnel on the ground, so I'm not sure where that stands at this moment. Americans and Afghans have been told the military is leaving, and the U.S. gave names and passport info to the Taliban. Now, there was an effort to clarify uh, what that um, what that meant, and according to Jen Psaki and one of the generals, they suggested that they only gave that information on individuals who were in transit to the airport, on buses, for example, who was on that bus in order to uh, get them through where they needed to go. And I've heard several different versions. I hope that one is true because that um, means that uh, Americans who were left behind and there are Americans who were left behind and Afghans who were also left behind are less vulnerable. But we'll see what actually happens. Anyway, students in Afghanistan who thought they were on a bus to be evacuated were told to head home. The Taliban posted a picture of themselves on social media standing at the entrance of a university building with an ominous message saying they were uh, where America trained infidel wolves to corrupt the minds of Muslims. The photograph was widely shared among Afghans and sent students and alumni into hiding. They had reason to be scared. In 2016, the Taliban attacked the campus with explosives and guns in a terrorist assault that lasted 10 hours and killed 15, including seven students. From another story, U.S. officials in Kabul gave the Taliban a list of names of American citizens, green card holders and Afghan allies to grant entry into the military controlled outer perimeter of the city's airport, a choice that's prompted outrage behind the scenes from lawmakers and military. Military officials. Uh, the move detained or rather detailed by uh, political by three U.S. and congressional officials was designed to expedite the evacuation of tens of thousands of people from Afghanistan as chaos erupted there in the capital city last week after the Taliban seized control of the country. It also came as the Biden administration had been relying on the Taliban for security outside the airport. Again, I can hardly believe those uh, that phrase fits together. Noah Rothman says, I think there is a total disconnect. We've been attacked and humiliated and our partners and friends abused. I don't think the note to strike on those occasions is sadness. It's um, laconic rage. Meanwhile, a look at the uh, arsenal left behind to help the Taliban gain power from high end night vision goggles to Black Hawk helicopters. The United States left terrorists with fighting equipment they only dreamed of. And my guess is they won't just use it themselves. It will be on the uh, on the uh, sale block. They'll be selling it to others. 
Well, families in the slain uh, of the slain Marines are angry and sad as their bodies were returned home. One father said, I'm really disappointed in the way that the president has handled this, even more so the way the military has handled it. The commanders on the ground should have recognized this threat and addressed it. Another father said, be afraid of our leadership or lack thereof. Pray every day for the soldiers that are putting their lives at risk and doing what they love, which is protecting all of us. I think they're the only ones that we can honestly say have our backs. Meanwhile, a mother said Biden, uh, uh, Biden voters just killed my son. And a look at the uh, Marines killed. We did a bit earlier in the program. Um, And this, of course, is the voice of tremendous uh, merited grief. Meanwhile, President Biden refused to answer questions on Afghanistan when discussing Hurricane Ida. He said, I'm not supposed to be taking questions, but go ahead. I'm not supposed to be taking questions. The reporter began with an Afghanistan question and Biden said, no, I'm not going to answer Afghanistan now, then turned and walked away. The reporter who asked the question was Bloomberg's Jennifer Jacobs. Hurricane Ida knocked out power uh, in New Orleans and other um, uh, difficulties. The uh, President Obama's Secretary of Education is comparing anti-maskers to suicide bombers. Suicide bombers. Uh, Arne Duncan said, um, noticed how strikingly similar both the mindsets and actions are between the suicide bombers at Kabul's airport And the anti-mask and anti-vax people here, they both blow themselves up, inflict harm on those around them and are convinced they are fighting for freedom. Wow, the hyperbole is uh, is shocking. Seth Mandel says current and former cabinet secretaries have every right to have their opinions and express them. But it would probably be better for American governance if PPL at that level did not reveal themselves to be off the deep end. Meanwhile, the majority of voters now say lockdowns did more harm than good. Well, there's much, much more to cover. We'll do that when we come back from uh, the break here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear from Tim McGrath. James Monroe, A Life is the title of his book. Well, the top news story for the day is the war in Afghanistan has officially ended. The withdrawal is complete, but the heartache continues. There are Americans and Afghans who were entitled to come to the United States or at least to be evacuated from Afghanistan who were left behind. In other news, over 3,000 pediatricians and medical professionals are suing the president over his transgender mandate. Pediatricians and other health care workers uh, are suing the administration over a mandate that's tied to health care, which would, according to the suit, require medical professionals to provide gender related services and surgeries despite objections, medical or otherwise. Objections, even to the treating of children, would be considered discrimination pursuant to Biden's reinterpretation of sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. And Amherst College is requiring all students there to be vaccinated and Double masked. Amherst is out of Massachusetts. It's also requiring not one, but two COVID tests upon arrival and more testing beyond that, along with other uh, frightened out of their mind requirements for students who may or may not show up. I'm not entirely sure. Well, 300 Americans are still trying to flee Afghanistan as the withdrawal Uh, entered its final stage. Uh, What could possibly go wrong? Well, the State Department announced a joint arrangement with the Taliban to evacuate Afghan allies after the deadline. We'll see how that works out. President Joe Biden checks his uh, watch during the transfer of the 13 bodies of U.S. military personnel killed in Afghanistan. And the Pentagon is prepared for a mass casualty attack in Kabul hours before the bombings. Well, they're now out. Altogether, the U.S. drone thwarted uh, rather a U.S. drone thwarted a terrorist attack in Kabul. Car was loaded with bombs that uh, were headed to the airport. Kabul airport was also targeted in a rocket attack, but was foiled. The U.S. handed over blank copies of visas in Afghanistan, setting terrorists up to potentially enter the United States. And a Marine battalion commander has been fired after blasting inept military leadership over the Afghanistan withdrawal. More than 3,000 pediatricians and medical professionals I've already mentioned. Well, now that COVID-19 is solved, the CDC has restated its discontinuing gun violence research program. And having COVID-19 once confers much greater immunity than a vaccine. Now, there's some back and forth on that, but it's rather a rather interesting prospect. 
Hurricane Ida plunged New Orleans into total darkness. A Florida judge rejected uh, Governor Ron DeSantis' ban on mask mandates in schools. Wisconsin lost track of 82,000 ballots in a state that the president won by 20,000. And a key inflation gauge uh, rises 3.6% from a year ago to tie the biggest jump ever since early 1990s. North Korea appears to have restarted a key nuclear reactor and billionaire progressives are funding a weather underground terrorists Ivy League think tank. Gavin Newsom praised a pro-Chinese Communist Party newspaper for journalistic integrity and the mother of a slain Marine unloaded on uh, the feckless, dementia ridden president, President Biden, end quote. Well, after President Biden gave the cue to Education Secretary Cardona, the Department of Education has launched civil rights probes against five Republican-led states that banned mask mandates in public institutions. The department's Office for Civil Rights sent letters to education leaders in Oklahoma, South Carolina, Iowa, Tennessee, and Utah. The recipients didn't include Florida or Texas, whose governors have been battling school districts in their states over mask requirements for weeks. However, the agency said it is closely monitoring the conduct of those states and is prepared to take action against them if warranted. The development comes as the president's um, directed the secretary of education to exercise full oversight authority and potentially pursue litigation against Republican states that prohibit mask mandates. They don't prohibit masks, but mandates. European Union nations voted on Monday to reimpose limits on non-essential travel from the United States with the dramatic increase in domestic COVID cases. And while a majority of EU ambassadors decided to reimpose the restrictions, it's up to the discretion of each member state whether to adopt the recommendation. To waive the travel cutbacks, countries can require visitors to present verification of vaccination as a condition of entry. The EU's actions represents a setback to the hospitality and tourism industry, which will likely suffer from reduced demand after the new directive if most European nations follow suit. Well, wading into the bitter debate about face mask mandates in schools, the president is threatening civil rights lawsuits. Some politicians are trying to turn public safety measures into political disputes for their own political gain. That's what the president complained last week, saying his administration won't sit by as governors try to block and intimidate educators protecting our children. Well, Biden's uh, framing implies that school officials are indisputably protecting children by forcing them to cover their faces all day and that anyone who suggests otherwise is motivated only by crass partisan motives. Yet the evidence that the public health benefits of universal masking in K-12 through schools outweigh its costs is far less impressive than the president suggests. Other governments seem to recognize that fact, as David Zweig Uh, Noted in New York magazine, many of America's peer nations around the world, including the UK, Ireland, all of Scandinavia, France, the Netherlands, Switzerland and Italy have exempted kids with varying age cutoffs from wearing masks in classrooms without experiencing more school related COVID-19 outbreaks than the U.S. has seen. Well, the latest guidance from the CDC and uh, by contrast recommends that everyone, regardless of age or vaccination status, wear face masks in K through 12 schools. But the studies the CDC cited to justify that stance generally were not designed to test the effectiveness of mask mandates. Well, one problem with those studies is that the schools they examined typically implemented several COVID-19 safeguards simultaneously. One exception was a CDC study of Georgia schools published in May, which found that COVID-19 infection was 37 percent less common in schools that required teachers and other staff members to wear masks, similar to the difference associated associated rather with improved ventilation. But the same study found that requiring students to wear masks, well, was not associated with a statistically significant reduction in case rates. So to suggest that everything on the uh, other side of the president's view of the subject is politically motivated it doesn't hold up to scientific scrutiny well on this day in history 1941 the two-year siege of leningrad during world war ii begins 1945 u.s general douglas macarthur arrives in japan to set up allied occupation headquarters 1967 thurgood marshall is uh, confirmed by the u.s senate to become the first african-american justice of the u.s supreme court 1963, a hotline between the Kremlin and the White House goes into operation to reduce the chances of an accidental war. 1983, Guyon Blueford Jr. becomes the first black American astronaut to travel in space as he blasted off aboard the Challenger. 
1989, a federal jury in New York finds Hotel Queen Leona Hemsley, or rather Helmsley, guilty of income tax evasion, but acquits her of extortion. She would end up serving 18 months in prison, a month at a halfway house and two months under house arrest. On this day in history, 1997, Americans receive word late at night that Princess Diana, her boyfriend Dodi Fayed, and their driver, Henry Paul, were killed in an early morning car crash in Paris. Because of the time difference, the date of the crash is August 31st in France. 1999, East Timor residents vote to secede from Indonesia. And finally, on this day in history, 2007, in a serious breach of nuclear security, the B-52 bomber armed with six nuclear warheads flies cross-country unnoticed. The Air Force would punish 70 people. Finally, an Illinois mother says a judge stripped her of custody of her son earlier this month because she's not vaccinated against COVID-19. During a child support hearing on the 10th of August, Cook County Judge James Shapiro in Illinois asked uh, Rebecca Fearlett, uh, 39, about her uh, vaccination status. After learning that uh, she did not receive a vaccine, Shapiro, the judge, barred her from seeing her 11-year-old son. A lawyer for Fearlett told the Chicago TV station on Monday that Shapiro had reversed his order and allowed the mother to see her son, but... And a hearing that had nothing to do with custody, but had something to do with the economics of her divorce arrangement. Uh, she was forbidden for a period of weeks from seeing her son because she was not vaccinated. It was uh, made known uh, later, at least in the press, that uh, she was not uh, she was told by medical professionals not to vaccinate for reasons that had to do with her health. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear an interview with Tim McGrath, the book, James Monroe, A Life. And then later in the final segment of today's program, we'll hear from an Afghanistan who has a satellite ministry uh, that will be beaming broadcasts and the gospel into Afghanistan and ponders whether or not what happened in Iran, one of the fastest growing churches in the world, will happen in Afghanistan under these most difficult circumstances. We'll be back. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs> 